Schwab Advisor Services is proud to support the RIA Edge podcast and equally proud to support independent financial advisors like you. In a challenging year, how did 68% of firms surveyed in Schwab's RIA benchmarking study meet or exceed their new client goals? By following key success factors, such as leveraging new technology, adapting strategies to win new business and stay connected with their clients, while also attracting and developing the right talent. The Schwab RIA benchmarking study is just one of many ways they provide you with the insights and resources needed to succeed and grow. Get the full picture at advisorservices.schwab.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the RIA Edge podcast, where we talk to leaders of registered investment advisory firms that are, in our estimation, growing by design and not by default. And we try to get at how they make that happen. In this episode, I had the chance to speak with Ryan Parker, who's the CEO of EP Wealth. Earlier in his career, Ryan was the president and CEO of Wealth Management at Citizens Bank and the CEO of Edelman Financial Services and a managing director at LPL Financial. So we had a lot to talk about. This conversation took place at Schwab's recent Impact Conference, so apologies for any background noise, but I enjoyed the conversation and I think you'll find it useful. Thanks for listening. Brian from EP Wealth Advisors, uh, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, David. Appreciate it. Uh, you know, uh, for the folks who are listening to this, maybe don't know EP Wealth Advisors. Uh, so, well, can you tell us just a little about the firm? I know you're relatively new in your position there. The firm's been around for a while. Sure. Can you give us a little bit of background on the firm and then maybe where you're at now? So, our, our firm will celebrate its 25th anniversary next year. It was founded in 1999 by two sixth grade buddies who are still friends to this day. And really what we have been doing and continue to do is build out a nationwide fee-only RIA, partnering with like-minded entrepreneurs who basically want to build something better together. So not a platform, not a roll-up, not financial engineering, but really something that's dedicated to ensuring that we're going to serve our clients for generations to come. So uh, we are about 400 employees across the country and 30 offices, just about $20 billion in assets, and we serve about 13,000 families, everyone from... Uh, you know, the person next door to people with nine figures uh, net worth and really do that first and foremost in the lens of financial planning. EP Wealth Advisors has always been a financial planning centric firm, right? Correct. Uh, that's yeah. that's what you've that, always that's led. That's been our roots, our DNA. Certainly investments are important, but really the investments are there to serve the financial plan, the tax planning, the estate planning, the trust services. You know, those are the conversations our clients want to have about their entire life. And that ultimately is where we focus a lot of our time and energy on building and sustaining growth. So that's a uh, growth trajectory that's uh, pretty incredible in this space, right? Uh, $20 billion in assets, you say, close to it? It's, it's been a, a bit of a rocket ship. As you said before, I, I get almost no credit for it. I, I joined the firm about two and a half years ago as the chief growth officer and then uh, took on the CEO responsibilities July 1st of this year. But if you just think about the trajectory... Uh, the firm was about two and a half billion dollars in assets in 2017, so o- almost a 10x in, in the last six years. Um, but a lot of that has been that combination of uh, not being a one-trick pony. Meaning we that we've done 32 partnerships with firms joining us, but we also have double-digit organic growth and do that in a way that is sustainable over time. We're owned uh, by our management team. We have minority outside investors, but. You know, between the two co-founders, the now executive chairman, me, and then 50 of our other partners, you know, EP is an advisor-led and management-owned and controlled firm. So we think that that helps us to be able to look for the long term. I'm interested in the organic growth story, and I'll get to it in a second, but let's talk about the acquisitions. Sure. First. So that's a, a lot of acquisitions in a, in a short amount of time. Was that a, a, a strategy that was hatched a while ago to do that, or was it just a matter of opportunity 
Uh, you know, we know the fractured nature of the RIA space. Yeah. So was it sort of like these opportunities fell into your lap or was there a definite pathway of like, okay, we're going to do 20 acquisitions this year? And De- Definitely an intentional strategy. So without giving you the whole story, Brian Parker and Derek Holman, our co-founders, had done a couple of acquisitions on their own in you know, 2014, 2015, and then uh, had Wealth Partners Capital Group, who continues to be a partner today, come investor. in 2017. And really, they have served as our M&A sourcing uh, and conversion partners for the, all of those 32. So it absolutely has been intentional. And part of this has been, how do we find talent first? So we look in a regional area. So here in Philadelphia, we found a great advisory firm with a billion dollars uh, out in media. We wanted to be in Philadelphia, but we wanted talent first. And then we do sub-acquisitions. So those can be growth sub-acquisitions. So just locally here, since we're at Impact, uh, there's another firm in Exton, Pennsylvania, that joined up forces with them. So then we can also do succession planning. So the M&A strategy is definitely intentional to find talent. We have regional directors, that's the principals who sell to us. And then they have a lot of local control and authority. And so our strategy is to get big by still thinking small, meaning clients really like the RIA model. They like the boutique feel. They don't want to have their money managed or their plan done by some big nameless faceless company. So they like their local advisors. That said, those advisors to compete need access to all hosts of services in wealth management, compliance, operations. And so that's the balance that we walk. We want to stay small. We want to stay local. But we have a single brand and we have a single set of offerings that everyone can tap into. So when you acquire advisors, they, uh, they do roll up into your brand. Correct. Yeah. Uh, these are W-2 employees. That's correct. And uh, you brand the firm, yet they still can retain a certain local identity. Correct. I guess. Correct. Own... Both identity, because look, people who live in Philadelphia are different than people who live in Salt Lake City, where, where I am. And mm-hmm. so we want to have that culture that made them successful persist. We also are hiring entrepreneurs who have built businesses, sometimes multi-billion dollar RIAs. And so they know how to run a business. So still they have local control of their P&L. They have local hiring decisions for their staff. We certainly support them with the recruiting and onboarding and HR, but they know their clients best. And so that is a nice balance between making sure that we don't become a, a corporate entity, but also that we have best practices that can be adopted across the entire country. Let me say, when you came in a few years ago uh, and then took the CEO role last year? Uh, July of this year. July of this year. Yeah. Uh, was that a, uh, a I guess, a, maybe a concession by the founders that this firm needed professional management of some sort? Uh, uh, you say it's advisor-led and right. advisor-focused. You were come from an advisor background. Uh, you were at Edelman. It's, uh, uh, you want to tell a little bit about what, where you came from and, and how sure. you ended up at... In a moment, but I'll also give you that, that context. I think it's actually really important. So, again, Brian Parker, Derek Holman were the, are, are the co-founders, and they are first and foremost advisors. In 2011, they had grown their firm to a billion dollars in assets, and they fired themselves. They said, we want to be advisors. We want to be practitioners. And that's when they hired Patrick Cassesian to come in as first the president and eventually the CEO for 12 years. And so Patrick really gets the credit for building the infrastructure and the team that allowed us to grow from that billion to almost $20 billion. So, so they recognized back then. They recognized back then. Professional and, and so, and really what we try to say, although I appreciate the term, is that it really is a professional management. It's just we have people who are working in the business. And they're working with clients. They're at that warm face. And then there's those of us who are working on the business. And it really has to be a true 
partnership because sometimes professional management is also a code word for turning kind of corporate or maybe focusing more on the bottom line mm-hmm. than the client experience and the employee experience. And that's not something we're going to deviate from. And that's why I talk about it being an advisor-led firm is that Brian, Derek, Patrick, and I really are the management for the entire organization. But so much of our ideas come from our advisors, from our regional directors, because they're the closest to the client. So that's that balancing act. So I don't see any material change in our strategy. Uh, Patrick and I spent two years uh, on the transition uh, from him uh, CEO to me and CEO. He's staying on as executive chairman. So there's a lot of continuity in our strategy. But you know, I do come from a background in you know, 15 years in investment management is where I started my career. Uh, after the global financial crisis, I frankly wanted to get closer to clients. That's when I went to LPL. Uh, at LPL, the opportunity really to uh, bring together a lot of the different offerings and advisory, brokerage, insurance, the sponsor relations group. So we had a, a really great group. It's basically though to make it simpler for advisors to access what LPL had. And then I um, was approached to become the chief executive at Edelman Financial. Mm-hmm. So I have no Wikipedia page, but if I did, it would say only guy not named Rick Edelman to be the CEO <laughs> at Edelman Financial. Uh, and so led that business um, to the point where we acquired and then merged with Edelman Financial Engines. Mm-hmm. Uh, once that was in a good place, I really wanted to get back to something more entrepreneurial. So as COVID unfolded and lots of things in life, that's where Brian Parker and I, who are not related, uh, reconnected, and it was a perfect point for me to be able to come aboard and just help to continue to lead the growth we had forward. When you say reconnected, did you know EP Wealth Advisors prior? I, I did. It's funny. Brian Parker and I served on the TD advisory panel together back in 2017 and, and 18, and they kept getting our name tags uh, mixed up. So it was kind of a running joke, but we did check the genealogy. We are not related by blood. Yeah. Common name, Parker. That's, yeah. uh, it's, you know, uh, that's great. So the... When you uh, are making these acquisitions, and we'll get to organic growth in a minute, because I'm interested, but when you're making these acquisitions, tell me a little bit about uh, what you're looking for in an advisory firm, what you're looking for in a partner firm, yeah. um, and, and what kind of boxes do they need to tick to be someone that would fall on your radar and you might go ahead and proceed to. Sure. The core of our strategy is the, the regional talent play. And so the first thing that we're looking for are talented advisors who have built a business. Profile is probably, in that case, $300 million to $2 billion in assets, but they're entrepreneurs. They're like-minded, fee-only advisors. They are playing the long run, but they're not ready to just uh, take a big check and retire or go to the golf course. So the, that profile is somebody who, like I said, the earlier example in Philadelphia, they had raised a billion dollars. They wanted to go back to being advisors and fight a microcosm of Brian and Derek for mm-hmm. 2011. That's a lot of that profile. And so what we find is that they're able to uh, release a lot of the hats that they've accumulated over time, the compliance, the, the operations, the HR, the finance, all super important, but not the highest and best use of a practitioner who loves serving and being in front of clients. And so that's really that profile. Long term, we want to grow we love the story of growing at 30% plus a year. We just want to build something better together as opposed to trying to, frankly, go it alone, which I think we all know is tougher and tougher on both the talent and the costs to run the business front. I imagine once you get to a billion dollars in assets as an advisor in Philadelphia, that you've already kind of have a lot of plumbing behind you that uh, you're plugged into, whatever platforms you use, you're custody with, or any of the asset management firms you 
do you go in and do they have to rewire all that when they join up with you? I mean, do you help them, you know, bring all that stuff on board to... We do. So we have a dedicated six-person partnership integration group who does nothing but that. Well before we even sign, uh, you know, an agreement to do a a merger or an acquisition, that group is in making the assessment, everything from soup to nuts. It actually starts with uh, the people. We are someone who likes to map every person who is at that current firm to a job at EP. We think that this is a talent business and it's hard enough to find great people. We want to find homes for people as they're joining. So it really starts there. But but you're right. We then go through every investment. We go through all the tech stack. We go through process and procedure. And we build out a transition plan. Some of those transition plans take three years to implement. If you have a client who has a low basis, you know, high gain position in a security, it makes no sense as a fiduciary to blow them out and get them, you know, to Indira. some sort of you know model portfolio. So we we take each client position. One so it's a pretty meticulous, laborious process, but it lowers that fear that the things that got me here to be successful as a billion dollars are suddenly going to be ripped from my hand. No, instead, it's a, a transition that gets people, frankly, to a better place. And you know, thus far, after 32 acquisitions, we've never had to unwind one. So okay. we think that that you know, speaks well to the process, taking into consideration people as well as the actual processes. The, the people question is interesting. It's one of the biggest complaints that we hear about from advisory firms is not being able to find talent. And we're not talking just necessarily about the advisor here. We're talking about the support staff. Absolutely. Uh, uh, I, do you have a, yeah, I, mean, I don't know if you could characterize it all, any kind of a, a, a attrition rate or, uh, you know, it sounds like the way that you're speaking that perhaps everyone comes on board. If, so, if somebody wants a role... We have found them a role, and not because we're just trying to, you know, find people a role. We have people who have a real passion for marketing, and now they can do marketing on a national stage in addition to their local market. We've had people who have had career changes. Every one of that partnership integration group that I talked to was a member of the firm that we partnered with, okay. and they chose afterwards to join that group so that they could pay it back and pay it forward. So that is something, so it's almost zero as far as the attrition rate as part of, or maybe to say it just more bluntly, we don't underwrite deal synergies to include reduction of staff. Okay. That's not in our model. There may be times, and there have been times, where people have been here for a year or two or three, and it's just not right for them. But that's normal, of course, as opposed to being part directly of the transaction. How do you find the, the given complexity of what must be 30, what partner firms now, did you say? 32, uh, 32 yeah. partner firms coming together. Uh, and then you rewire the plumbing to kind of bring them all into the same platform, the same tech stack eventually. Uh, but nonetheless, that's still a lot of complexity to uh, juggle. And, and one of the big conundrums in this industry, as you know, is, is keeping your sort of personal bespoke client relationships, as you guys do with your financial planning-centric regional right. strategy, with the kind of efficiencies that you need yeah. for a, a firm of this scale. Well, so it's first of all, it's a choice because in some ways it'd probably be easier to either just be a financial engineering play or to be so fully integrated that you know you, you're like a Starbucks where the Americano is the same sure. no matter where you are. So we probably have chosen the more difficult path to strike that balance, but we've done it intentionally. And what we found is that there is complexity, but here's the simplicity. We ask ourselves, what's in the best interest of our clients? When you answer that, it tends to say, what do I need to do with and for my employees? And that gives people a sense of purpose that we're not doing it to drive earnings growth. We're not doing it to drive margin. I mean, those are financial realities. They're not very inspiring to people. So 
I'd say the, the best proof in the, is in the pudding, that when you look across all of these different regions, the vast, vast majority of them have grown tremendously and sustainably since they got here. So, you know, I think about uh, we have a group that's in Arizona. They joined us with about $200 million in assets four or five years ago. They're just about to approach a billion dollars, both through organic growth and through two acquisitions that they have done, integrated, and then continued to grow. So that, that we think is a little bit of the secret sauce at EP is to walk that balance between all the different dynamics you just said and not let the complexity take our eye off of that ball. Of It's about serving clients. Mm-hmm. Talk to me then a little bit about this organic growth, uh, because I, I feel like you know, we've had 10 years where being an RIA, you could just be an RIA and grow, essentially, with the markets up and up and up. Uh, we've seen that wobble a little bit now. Uh, it sounds like you've had an organic growth strategy that was more intentional than just riding the market wave. Uh, tell me a little bit about what you do sure. for your partner firms, for your advisors in terms of... I, organic growth, first and foremost, I think is the canary in the coal mine. If you're able to attract, retain, and get referrals from clients through organic growth channels, it means that your offering and value proposition is resonating with the market. If organic growth starts to fall off, there's something that isn't compelling about what you're offering, or maybe they don't understand what you're offering. So first and foremost, it's just a bellwether on how well we are serving our current clients, not even thinking about yet how you get the next one. So that's number one. Number two is it's an absolute intentional strategy, one we've invested tremendously behind over time. Most advisors have a natural market and they have an affinity and they are good at their craft and so they get referrals locally. They may have relationships with CPAs and attorneys and those are definitely important sources of organic growth. They're very difficult to scale. You can't teach personality. (laughs) You can't teach that. So where we've really invested has been on two fronts. You know, number one is that really since the earliest days of the firm, we've been part of the TD and now Schwab and Fidelity referral programs. So half of our organic growth comes from referrals that we've earned from those financial consultants that are custodian partners. And so we've you know, worked a tremendous amount to train our advisors, whether they've been with us for 20 years or 20 minutes, on what are the best practices to work with those financial consultants, work with those clients, and make sure we're not the people you refer to to chase the hot dot or the best stock or bond or mutual fund. We're the ones that get the referral when it's a complex tax and estate and financial planning case. So that's one of the areas we've invested in tremendously is that custodian referral channel. Mm-hmm. You know, the other half of our organic growth, and we're, we're averaging 10 to 12% organic growth X market that's each amazing. year. And, and that is something that got me excited coming from Edelman and other places that that's, that is difficult to achieve. It's very difficult to achieve when you have uh, acquisition, right? And yet we are persisting to do that. Part of that is, is that we have an advisor learning development team that has an individual plan with every advisor to look at their business and decide how they're going to grow. And then we have programs. So if you're going to grow by referrals, we have a mastering the conversations for referrals program. You have to graduate from a custodian referral program before we'll allow you to go into the branches so that you're representing EP well. And then the last year and a half, we took our marketing department from three people to 16. And I hired Jim Mochi, who was the number two marketer at Fisher, and helped build a lot of their branding and a lot of other areas to come in and really put together an internally owned lead generation machine. So if you think about those three three legs of the stool, if I can use that analogy of the traditional referrals, which are important but difficult to scale, 
the custodian relationships, which you can get better. And as we grow nationally, we have more and more you know, points of sale, if you will. And then the own lead generation is our ability to dial it up or down based on success. So you put those together. You know, my, my objective is, is that we should be able to do 10, 12, maybe even 15% net new asset uh, growth over time. And then lastly, it really does come down to the, the will uh, that advisors want to grow. So I, I'm really proud of the fact that the majority of our advisors are growing. So it's not just two or three rainmakers who I was are doing all of the growth. Sort of even no, it's, it is. It's really, you know, again, I give the credit to the team and also to the model that over 40% of our advisors are growing better than 10% a year. In aggregate, that group is growing over 20% this year on an annualized basis. And so it's widespread. So that, that means it's 40% of 130 advisors. So it's a pretty wide swath that are doing well. Others are growing more slowly. And there's a few people who are later in their career and they're getting ready to retire. That's fine. That's part of our succession plan. We're not expecting someone who's going to retire in two years to, to grow at 10%. But on balance, we feel really good about the breadth and depth of our organic growth program. Um, the You've been participating in the M&A world. Have you noticed in the past year, given the market wobbling, any change there? How do you, how do you read the M&A for RNAs now? Are I you mean, still finding as many advisors to talk to? I mean, absolutely. I mean, at a headline level, I would say we're, we are in the early innings of a overall consolidation wave in the RIA space. And so there are you know, 15,000 RIAs that are out there today. And there are many of them who are looking to partner with someone who can help them either grow uh, or just build something better uh, together. We have not seen any um, fall off in what we would call our pipeline. Uh, we meet every Monday. We review the pipeline of firms that we're engaged in. It was three pages a year ago. It's three pages today. Uh, so that part of it has not been really a change at all. I would say there's been some shift in market participants as the cost of capital has gone up and that some people I think are watching their balance sheet, understandably. So there's been a little bit of that, but really, I'd say that the dynamics are, are pretty much unchanged. You know, there's a lot more buyers than sellers. That means that valuations are healthy and you have to be on your toes in order to prevail as someone who's the best fit for someone who's looking to, to sell their business. So you have not seen uh, uh, valuations fall necessarily? Uh, we have not. Okay. We have not. And, and for me in particular, that makes sense for your highest quality firms. You know, people should be willing to pay a reasonable but a premium price for high-quality firms. And high-quality firms have talent, they grow, and they have offerings that take care of clients. And so you know, you're not going to get those in the bargain basement, let's put it that way. Interesting that you talk about uh, embedding uh, a transition team with the firm even before a, a deal is struck. Right. And you say that can take a long time. How long are you looking at a firm before you might decide to pull the trigger? Well, I mean, it really depends. And there, there have been times where that's measured in years okay. uh, where we've engaged with someone. Maybe they're not ready and then you know something changes in their life or their business and they become ready. So we stay in touch with them. I say, though, that the, the traditional cycle, though, from introduction to close is six to nine months. But that, that close then starts a, a year-long formal integration process. So if you measured it from you know, start to finish, it could be two years. One more question before you have to go, I know. Uh, I get the sense you have to leave. But uh, the services that you offer clients, uh, you know, we always hear here and other places that uh, the, the most important thing an advisory firm can do now is to offer a broader swath of services to retain that level of value that they charge. 
what kind of services are you looking for, and maybe what have you brought in recently, and what kind of services are you still looking for to kind of round out that? So our and. I appreciate the opportunity. If, if someone says where I need to go, then I'll go. But I, I'm yours until we uh, until we wrap. Uh, first and foremost, for years we believe that we should bring family office level services to the quote unquote millionaire next door. Those are folks whose needs can be as complex as a family that has hundreds of millions of dollars. And so we have been on a mission to make sure that people get a fulsome financial plan. Not a financial plan that you can just, you know, drop out of a computer system in 20 minutes, but you know, looking at all assets, all facets, you know, Medicare, real estate. It would actually take me too long to name all the different things that the group does. We then found that clients really look for someone who can help them with their tax planning. Uh, so we have invested over 20 CPAs in our firm that help not only with tax planning, but actually tax preparation. Uh, we then found that people really want help with their estate plan. Some people want simple foundational documents, and we can offer that through a partnership we have with Trust and Wills. Sometimes it's very complicated. So we have six JDs on staff who help put together comprehensive estate plans, and then a nationwide group of uh, attorneys who actually will draft those documents in the state, right? Obviously yep. being admitted to, to the bar there. We recently, so those are two areas that over the last several years, we went from having three people in those areas to now 30. Okay. So a 10x. <laughs> and then we've recently added a trust services where we can now have advisors named as trustees for client accounts and help them to work on you know, apartment buildings and things there, thereafter. Uh, so that is a pretty comprehensive suite. And I think that what we're now doing is making sure that we understand how clients discern value. Meaning, there's some people, if you throw the spaghetti against the wall and give them everything, they might not actually think it's that valuable. So we're making sure we understand what do different client types and segments value. That's informing where we're going to look to invest next. That might be to extend some of the offerings we have, tax, estate, trust, retirement plans, whatnot. That might be another service that people find is really, really valuable. Those can be bill pay. Those can be other areas that we need to study. Okay. Tell me a little bit about the trust services that you brought in-house. Did you build it yourself or did you acquire? How, and, and, and why? What was the need there? Sure. So we are leveraging a nationwide provider, but we're white labeling it. So it's a you know EP name and logo, and we actually hired a former First Republic Bank trust director for Southern California to come in to make sure we're doing it right. And so, but we also leverage the expertise and scale at the back office of our, our provider. So that helps us to balance. Uh, we own the brand, but we didn't have to build it from scratch. Really, the need has been, as we've done more and more of the integrations between tax, estate, investments, and planning, there are more and more clients who really want someone that is their advisor to be the named trustee so that that relationship, even when they pass away, doesn't all of a sudden become in flux. And so that's a lot of where the demand has come from. We also know that a lot of our clients and our larger clients you know, have pretty sophisticated assets. They have unique assets. And real estate and, and others that really you need to have that in-house trust services expertise to make sure that the comprehensive financial plan is informed by the unique nature of some of those uh, assets and liabilities. You use a national partner, but is it also a way just purely from a, a business building perspective of keeping those assets close to the advisor? Close uh, to the in, advisor. And honestly, it, it, it oftentimes will trigger our clients bringing more of their assets 
for us to look at as far as the plan and ultimately to, to manage. So there absolutely is a business development aspect. Wasn't the driver behind it, frankly, because our share of wallet usually is high to start with, just given the planning orientation. But we're not naive that we have every single dollar of every client. I think that's usually a preposterous point of view. So having this type of a trust services does allow us to say, hey, we can take all of those assets, manage them better. And also they tend to then have a lower overall cost, right? Because our fee schedule goes down as the assets go up. So it actually ends up being a pretty good value for the client as well as a better overall experience. One final question before I let you go. You know, we're here at the Schwab Impact Conference. Uh, a lot of advisory firms here. Uh, you know, who do you consider your competition at this point? Are they still the sort of entrenched warehouses, the broker dealers, that sort of transactional nature advisory firm, or uh, are you bumping shoulders with people here that now that you've grown to a national size, you're you know getting close to a national firm? Are other RIAs your competition? Where do you see the company? Well, I mean, to, to say it plain, I think the first competition is ourselves. There is enough demand out there for what we do that we need to make sure we're benchmarking against our own expectations. It starts with trust and integrity before I worry about anything else. And that might sound like motherhood and apple pie, but in this business, competing against yourself, you're going to do better than if you're always worried about what's going outside your four walls. That being said, I would say there's still so much headroom for the RIA model, the fiduciary model, to gain share from those that are still commission-driven and product-driven and transaction-oriented, that I would see all the folks here, the RIA community, is still really more aligned to the big picture in helping more people in a way that puts their interests first. There always is competition between some of the larger players. That, that That's going to happen. But that's a second-order competition to really shifting the landscape of the entire industry into the benefit of clients and putting their interests at the top of the stack. I, I, following on that same question, I know I said one more, but following on that one, the bonus round. The bonus round. Do you, you see Schwab itself as a competitor? We don't. We okay. see them as a partner. Uh, and they are a partner in fact. Uh, they're a partner certainly as our largest uh, custodian partner. So they're responsible for so many billions of our clients' assets. They're a partner in the Schwab Advisor Network. We don't see it as a wholesaling or transactional relationship. We see it as we can be an extension of Schwab's retail relationship. There are times where Schwab becomes an extension of our wealth management relationship. And I would just say that the relationships we've built over 20 plus years with a number of Schwab leaders really make that concrete. And so, no, we we see them as a friend and not as a competitor. This has been great. Schwab Advisor Services is proud to support the RIA Edge podcast and equally proud to support independent financial advisors like you. In a challenging year, how did 68% of firms surveyed in Schwab's RIA benchmarking study meet or exceed their new client goals? By following key success factors, such as leveraging new technology, adapting strategies to win new business and stay connected with their clients, while also attracting and developing the right talent. The Schwab RIA benchmarking study is just one of many ways they provide you with the insights and resources needed to succeed and grow. Get the full picture at advisorservices.schwab.com.